John chapter 11. We're going to continue our study through the book of John. Uh, Lord willing, finish up John chapter 11 this morning so we can move forward. And we looked over the last couple of weeks at John chapter 11, uh, specifically this relationship that Jesus had with this family of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And we see that interaction that took place uh, as we looked first back in, in uh, the book of Luke and when Jesus was visiting their home on a regular basis. Martha was up and very busy. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. We talked about that. Uh, both of those are good things. Jesus expressed to Martha at that time that Mary had chosen the good thing, the best part, the most excellent thing, which was spending time with him. But she didn't really, or he didn't really rebuke her for serving, for we all know that churches everywhere would be in sad shape if it wasn't for the Marthas, right? We need people to serve, uh, just like the people that serve back with the kids that are doing an excellent job this morning, without a doubt. Uh, <laughs> you can tell the kids are just enjoying themselves back there, right? <laughs> That's the issue you run into with small buildings without concrete walls between here and there. But uh, uh, So we, we need the Marthas and we need the Marys. We all need to be both, don't we? Uh, we need to be spending time at the feet of Jesus so that we can effectively serve him when the Martha kicks in in each one of us, right? So Mary and Martha, and then we, uh, we met Lazarus last week in our study with some extenuating circumstances. Obviously, he um, was dead and uh, Jesus raised him from the dead. So that's what we're going to pick up with our text uh, this morning. Uh, starting off with verse 45, we see Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. And we know from our text that there were many present uh, at this miracle. And Jesus prays to the Father in verse 41. We talked about this a little bit. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So before Jesus does this act of raising Lazarus from the dead, he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And then in verse 42, he says, because of the people standing by, I said this, that they may believe. So Jesus was going directly to the Father, communicating with the Father to make that connection for the people so that the people knew Jesus and the Father were one. They were in this together. This was going to happen because it was the will of the Father and Jesus was going to carry this out because it was the will of the Father. So who were these people standing by? Well, certainly Martha and Mary, we know they were there. The disciples were there, we know. And then the text tells us in verse 45, many of the Jews, many of the Jews who had come to Mary. So there were many Jews that were there. How many? We have no idea, but there were many that were there. Uh, here's what we do know as we read verses 45 and 46. Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. So there were many Jews that were there. Uh, some of those Jews, it says from the text, believed, and some of them went away. What's interesting about that is all of them were there. All of them saw this miracle, saw what was going on. Now, 
It's hard for me to imagine, and I'm sure you as well, as you look at this text and you know these people were there, Jesus communicates with the Father, and then the stones rolled away and Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. So if you were there, you would have made the connection between the words of Jesus and how Lazarus responded. He got up and came out of the tomb, didn't he? So you'd have to uh, you know, presume that well, Jesus had something to do with this. I mean, that's just a, a natural thought, right? Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that would have to impact you, impress you on so many different levels just to see that take place. Now, we know that Jesus had healed a lot of people up to this point. Uh, Jesus had performed uh, other miracles. But the impact of this one had to be amazing. So if, if you were there and you had heard of these other things and you're like, he just raised somebody from the dead. Uh, that's only possible by God himself, by what you would know about God. So you'd have to make that connection between Jesus and God and that Jesus, certainly a representative of God, but was God himself. And I'm amazed at this text because many believed and stuck around, we know from it, and many went away. The text doesn't say that they believed and went away, that it says that they, they went away. So we don't know where they were with that, but without a doubt, their lives would have been impacted by this miracle, wouldn't it? It had to be. And so they leave, they go away. So in our text today, the scene shifts from the site of the tomb where Lazarus has just been raised from the dead, where it tells us what Jesus said and did. He instructed the people to loose him and let him go. So again, we have this cast of characters, Jesus, Martha, and Mary, many Jews, some who believed and some who didn't and left. And who else? Who else do we have there? Lazarus. Now, I find it interesting as well. I didn't write the book of John. Number one, my name's not John. Number two, I wasn't there. And we know that God's word is inspired by God. So God inspired John to write this the way that he did. But I look at this and immediately I think, what about Lazarus? What did Lazarus have to say? What, what, what was going on there? You know, one minute he's hanging out in paradise. And then the next minute, <laughs> he's in the tomb, wrapped up, coming forth. And he walks out of the tomb still bandaged up. What just happened? Did Lazarus know this was going to take place? We have no idea. It's one of those things that we can save. Hey, we're going to ask Lazarus when we get to heaven. What was that like? Being all wrapped up and then all of a sudden walking out of the tomb and people losing you. You know, the people just had to be amazed at what took place. We didn't talk about it much last week, but after four days in a tomb, dead, uh, you know, the whole decay process would be starting. That's why we did mention he would stinketh much, you know, as, as the text says in the King James. But he would have been decaying. So not only did Jesus raise him from the dead, but reversed any decay that would have been going on. He was uh, fresh and new and uh, 
I don't even want to say just as good as he would have been before he died. He's better, right? He's not even ailing anymore. He's, uh, he's looking good, Lazarus is. So what was he thinking about all this? What was it like for him? We have no idea. But, um, you know, we'll get a chance to talk to him about that in heaven. So that's all we have written for us regarding Lazarus. There's not a whole lot mentioned in Scripture other than being a part of this family. And then we'll see him again in chapter 12 um, next week or the week after when we get to it as it talks about him. But So we have this group of Jews, the family of Lazarus, uh, friends, family members, whatever, hanging out with Jesus and the disciples after this miracle. And we have some Jews who went to the Pharisees to tell them what had happened. And the chief priests, in verse 47, and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do for this man works many signs? Let's pray before we get more into the text this morning. Father, we thank you that we have the opportunity to look at this text and looking in it, at it in the light of what it is that you desire to teach us. What is the application that we can get from this? So, Father, share with us the truth from your word this morning. Give us application, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this text today, if you're a note taker, can be divided into three parts, three distinct verses that take place here that kind of divide this text for us. These three parts are the report, number two, the response, and number three, the result. Report, response, and result. So the report, we see in verse 46 that some of the Jews come with a report to the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then in verse 47, we see that they gather together a council to discuss the situation. Now, first of all, these Jews that went to, to give them this report, you might wonder, why, now why didn't they stick around? Well, in that day, the religious leaders of the day had great influence on the people. And we know that if the people weren't adhering to not only the laws and the rules uh, and regulations of these Jewish uh, religious leaders, uh, it could impact their families and their businesses. Because if they were doing something that went against uh, those desires of those leaders, they could have been asked to leave the synagogue or cast out of the synagogue, which would impact income, uh, their family, ostracized. You know, there's just a lot of things life kind of revolved around the synagogues and so to be cast out of that uh, could have adverse effects on their on their family and and again their their incomes their livelihoods so if they were being asked to hey go out there follow this Jesus around and what you see happening what you see him saying report back to us so that's what's going on here so again we don't know some of these people may have certainly believed because but because of Fear of man, they went back to, this, to these leaders and reported what was going on. So that's how it got there. You can't necessarily look at them like rats, you know, like, man, are ratting Jesus out. Look at these guys, you know, they see this miracle. They probably even have been fed by him, you know, in the feeding of the 5,000. Now they're ratting him out, you know, to the leaders. That's not necessarily the case. Some of them maybe, but I think for the most part, they're just trying to uh, be obedient to what these leaders are telling them to do so they don't get in trouble with them. So they go to these leaders, they tell them the story of what happened, and so these Pharisees uh, gather together a council 
to discuss this situation. Now, what's this council? What's it made up of? Well, we know, as we've seen it before in our study of John, it's made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These two major religious groups of the day, Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were more religiously minded, if you will, and the Sadducees were really more politically minded. Both groups religious, both groups contained priests and scribes and those types, but there was a difference between the two groups. One of them being more religiously minded, more of them, the other with a more politically minded focus. And we know through Scripture that these two groups, they just didn't play well together. They just, they just didn't really get along all that well. It, you know, picture it like a modern-day version of Democrats and Republicans, right? Uh, we're all Americans, but we've got this division because of our focus, the things that we uh, believe, the things that we uh, adhere to. And so there's that, the differences, and it's rare when the two groups come together. We see in Washington, they always try to teach that, don't they? Oh, go across the aisle and shake hands with the... Yeah, and they should, but it doesn't always happen that way. So there's this rift between these two groups. Now, what were some of their differences? What were their different uh, opinions and agendas and ideals? Well, the Sadducees only believed in the written law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, they didn't have the Bible then, but the first five books written. Uh, so they were not as spiritual. They were more liberal in their thinking. But we know that they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. They were more political than religious. Uh, they were the rich uh, aristocracy of Jerusalem. They were the wealthy ones. And they bowed to what Rome wanted to keep their position and their money intact. They wanted to keep their position in society as it was, so they bowed to Rome's demands to keep things working smoothly. Now, the Pharisees, they believed in the written law as well, the Torah, but they also believed in the in oral law, an in interpretation of the, of the Torah. We know that during the 400 silent years, when God wasn't speaking through any prophets, that these were the guys that come up with a whole bunch of other laws to go down, to go with the laws that were written in the Torah. So they just kind of added to it, these sub-laws, and there were a bunch of them. Now, they were admired by the people, for the most part, for their apparent uh, piety. And they believed in a bodily resurrection and eternal life. And they believed in angels and demons. So, all of a sudden, you can see where the rift would start. Just a different belief system in so many ways. Now, don't get me wrong. They all believed in one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. So, they all believed in the same God. However, there was that difference between them. Now, the Pharisees also had an official high priest as well. So basically, you had the strictly political and strictly religious of the day coming together in this council. And they had conflicts over these different agendas and just a basic dislike for each other. But the one thing that they had in common, coming together for this common cause, asking this question, what do we do with this man, Jesus? In verse 48, we see some of this. It says, If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. 
So they basically feared what might happen to the lifestyles they had set up for themselves. They feared that the current way that they did things was going to change, and they, they feared change. They didn't like it. Now, in all honesty, we can relate to these guys, can't we? We've all worked to achieve a certain level of livelihood, a certain lifestyle. And, I mean, how many of you just this morning just love change? You just thrive on change. You just can't wait for change to happen. How many of you? Anybody? <laughs> Tracy, that's great. That's good. I like change, just not too much, you know. Uh, maybe change that still fits into what I have for goals and agendas, right? It's like, okay, I, I kind of had that one going for me anyway. That's the way I was looking. So that type of change, uh, yeah, that works. But they feared change. And along with that, because we're looking at Rome and Rome's presence in uh, Jerusalem at this time and all of Israel, uh, they feared man, didn't they? Because man was the one that would be behind these changes. So they had a fear of man. But notice what they said in this verse. It says, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans, these men, will come and do two things. Take away both our, what? Our place and our nation. And look at the order that they put that in. They'll take away our place and our nation. They feared how this man Jesus might disrupt their way of life. They were in what? Self-preservation mode. The title of the teaching this morning, if you want to write it down, is The Art of Self-Preservation. <laughs> we do that as well. We do. We just have to admit that, that we're in that mode as well. The word that you could use maybe to substitute for self-preservation, especially in this case, would be selfish preservation. I'm worried about me. It's all about me and what I've got going on, so I want to preserve self. I want to preserve my place, not as much my nation. We're concerned about our nation, of course, but much hasn't changed. We see that the reason this council comes together is because Jesus, the name of Jesus, divides, doesn't it? There's differing opinions. We've got these people that are back at the home of Lazarus and the girls, Man, they're just rejoicing. They're thanksgiving for what uh, this miracle that has taken place. Then we have the group that went to Jerusalem to report this, and we have this group, and you have this group not knowing just what to do with Jesus, and then you have this group back at Lazarus' home, uh, and just rejoicing that they get to spend time with Jesus. Jesus' name, Jesus himself, divides people. And for us, in our day and age, to believe in Jesus should and will cause change in our current lifestyle. Now, we know that when we initially come to Jesus, but that's also a repeating, recurring theme for us. As Jesus teaches us something, as Jesus speaks something to us, impacts our life in one way or another, it changes us, doesn't it? We should be in a constant state of change as we walk with Jesus, because he's in the business of changing us, right? It should be happening. If we came to the Lord and nothing in our life or our lifestyle changed, I would have some serious doubts as to whether or not we came to the Lord, period. 
And I know that's kind of a bold statement and maybe even sounds judgmental, but Jesus in our life should cause us to change. There should be those things that we set aside and new things that we take up for the name of Jesus. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen immediately, right? How many of you, when you first came to the Lord, may have had something that you were involved with? I know from years ago, you talked to some of the old hippies that came to the Lord through Chuck's ministry, and they were still smoking marijuana, still doing some drugs after they came to the Lord. It took a while for the Lord to purge them of that. You know, uh, Chuck didn't say, you can't come in this building if you haven't given that up. You know, he, he didn't do that. He was allowing Jesus to work in their lives and allow Jesus to purge those things out. And that's the way that it should be. And he will do that according to his will and according to his timing, not ours. So living for ourselves versus living for Jesus. Believing in Jesus requires change. It, it just has to. We can no longer live by our own set of rules. And this is where we see this council is at this point. They had taken the laws of God and they had added to it and put in their own set of rules and laws. And so they were requiring the people to adhere to those things when they themselves didn't keep them. So this discussion continues. We've talked about this before. It's not the first time that Jesus has disrupted things, but it's getting worse. Uh, they can't deny the miracles that he's doing. They can't de deny the power in his teaching. And they can't deny he's gaining a lot of followers. So they see it as a problem that must be dealt with. They're discussing as a council, what do we do with him? We see in verse 49, this Caiaphas speaks. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Now that verse continues, there's a comma after that, but I, I think that that gives us some insight into this Caiaphas, doesn't it? I think this is a man that's filled with much pride. He is the high priest. He is a leader with them. But he says to them, you know nothing at all. Now, if I was to say that to you guys this morning, some of you would be offended by that. Some of you would go, you're right. I don't know nothing at all. No, I mean, maybe you wouldn't, but you know what I'm saying. So verse 49 talks about this Caiaphas. Who is Caiaphas? What also says he's the high priest. He was also the son of Annas. Son-in-law, excuse me. He was the son-in-law of Annas. Annas was formerly the high priest. But history tells us, if you read the writings of Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, there were some conflicts between Annas, the council, Rome. So Annas steps back and Caiaphas becomes the high priest. Now, the, the office of high priest was one who ruled over the temple. And it was actually appointed by the Romans. In this case, Herod. They appointed the high priest to rule over the temple. The office of high priest was often appointed through treachery and bribery. So, you have this elite, the aristocracy of, of Jerusalem in that area, who Annas and Caiaphas were a part of that. Now it's an interesting note that as you look at Caiaphas, he was considered to be a Pharisee, but his background would tell you that he should be a Sadducee. Came from a very wealthy family. Why? He married into it. 
He married Annas' daughter. So it was a bidding process. The Roman ruler in Jerusalem would appoint the position of high priest to the highest bidder. So whoever come up with the, mo- the most money, whoever could come up with the best deal, the best bennies, if you will, benefits, not bennies as in the 60s. Forget that. <laughs> Flashback, sorry. Uh, so the benefits that they would have, the money that they would offer to those ruling in, Ro- uh, from, you know, in Jerusalem who were part of the Roman government, that's who would get appointed as the high priest. So we know that the temple at this time, they were ruling over the temple, and the temple had become a money-making machine, lining the pockets of Herod himself. Remember in John 2, we studied about Jesus turning over the money changers' tables? Well, that's when the problem started, because Jesus hit them right in the pocketbook, all the way up. That's why they're freaking out right here, because the money's not continuing to flow, and flowing right on up to Herod, What's Herod going to do? There's got to be a change made. They don't want a change to be made. They want things to stay the way they are. So, they're freaking out. Annas, the former high priest, he's still really in power behind the scenes. He's the power behind that office, even though he doesn't have the title. He's kind of like, well, in our country, former president George Bush or whoever. He still recognizes one that was a former high priest and the respect that goes with that, but yet he was no longer the face of that high priestly office. So he's working now through his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So anything Caiaphas said or did was ultimately under the direction of his father-in-law. Did you catch that, Brandon? I had to, it's right here in my note, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> so on this day, what Caiaphas has to say is influenced not by Annas, but by God himself. We have the report to the Pharisees by some of the Jews regarding Lazarus, this report. Now we're going to see the response. Number one was report, second is response. We see the response of this council and what is said and what is decided has profound implications that they had an agenda, an agenda of self-preservation. Verse 49, And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest, that year said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. What is going on here? God speaking through Caiaphas? God's using someone who doesn't believe in his son? It happens, doesn't it? It happens more often than we even realize that God can use anyone, speak through anyone at any time, however he chooses to. Why is that? Well, he's God. (laughs) He can do that. He can do whatever he wants. He can speak through whoever he wants. God can choose from anyone to speak his heart and to reveal his truth. Keynote, God can choose from anyone to speak his heart 
and reveal His truth. He does that. You may have experienced that. Some years ago when Chris and I lived in North Carolina, I was on the receiving end of something like that. We had determined through the church, a spring was coming up and we decided, hey, let's put together a church softball team. You know, we got some guys with some skills. Uh, you know, there's a lot of those guys, maybe you've seen the shirts, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> the team was made up of half of those guys. And then some young guys, you know, just to keep us from getting in too much trouble. You know, don't pull anything, old man. I was kind of an in-betweener. <laughs> I was a tweener. I, was, I wasn't a young guy. I was in my mid-30s. I wasn't an old guy either. So, you know, I still had some skills. I played a little ball in school, you know. <laughs> but we decided to have this softball team. Now, at the time, there was no church league in, in this city. It was just the slow-pitch softball league. And so if we were going to have a team, that's what we, who we were going to be playing against. But we decided, hey, well, you know, that could be a great witness tool. We could have the opportunity, man, just to show them how godly men conduct themselves in the middle of intense sports activity, right? So anyway, we put this team together. And I was telling some guys from work. At that time, I worked for an engineering and surveying firm. And I was telling some of those guys, and they were saying, Man, you ought to get Newton on your team. Bobby Newton, man, he is a softball-playing machine. He was a pitcher. He said he is really good. So, and Bobby was just a, just a nice guy. You know, he was one of those guys that you go, he would make a good Christian. You ever see people like that? that they just conduct themselves in such a way. They're just a good person. Good morals. Uh, they never talk bad about anyone. They're, they're just a good person. And so I went and talked to him because I thought you know what, we could do a little mini outreach on the team itself for somebody like Bobby, and he loves to play softball, so I approached him about it, and he was like, you know what, he said, I think I would really enjoy that, because the typical softball scene, you know, is softball, dirt, and beer, you know, and so just to kind of have a change, he said, I, I get tired of the language, I get tired of, and you're thinking, gosh, how, how is it that he's not a, a believer, you know, uh, just listen to him. So, Bobby comes on our team. He joins our team. All the guys are excited because it's like, well, we got a guy that's got proven skill and the rest of us are just kind of an unknown quantity at that time. And so play our first game. We win our first game. Man, things are going great. And you just think, oh, yeah, we're up. And man, this is going to be such a great witness to the community, you know, and, and we're going to be able to, to work in Bobby a little bit, you know. Second game comes up and we were terrible. I don't know. The wheels fell off. Nothing was going right. Guys bickering at each other, not getting along on our team, not getting along. I mean, just a mess, talking bad about the umps, talking bad about the other team. It, it was just, it was ugly. It was just a mess. So that was on a Friday or Saturday night. I went back to work on Monday morning, you know, just, ah, oh, man, I was just, I was still bummed about it, you know. And Bobby, he comes into an office area where I worked and he said, you know, he said, uh, if you don't mind, I think I'm going to bow out of the team. I was like, oh, why? You know, and he goes, I, I really thought you guys would be different than what you were. You're, you're just like any other softball team I've played on. And, you know, I really, and man, you talk about hitting you right between the eyes. And I was like, golly, this is hard. So I got back to town that night and 
I got in touch with all those guys and I said, here's what happened today. I said, we've got some serious ground to make up here. We need to be doing some confessing and repenting, uh, certainly apologizing to Bobby. And so everybody did. Everybody got in touch with Bobby in one way or another and let him know, you know, hey, we messed up. We, we did the very thing that we call sin because we were sinning, you know. <laughs> Bottom line, that's what it was. <laughs> so let him know. Bobby did come back to the team. And I tell you, the rest of that season, win or lose, it just went wonderfully. And I think that a lot of it was because most of the time when you're playing softball, where's the focus, the attention? On the pitcher, right? And that was Bobby. And I don't know, over time I know the gospel was shared with him several times, whether he ever, come, ever came to the Lord or not, I don't know. He did visit church several times. Uh, I pray that he did. But what a neat guy. But God used him as an unbeliever to impact the lives of a bunch of stinking believers sinning, you know? I mean, we, oh, it's just, even to this day, it bothers me, right? But God is using, in our text today, He's using someone like Caiaphas. The depth of the prophecy that Caiaphas gives here, he gives, basically, the plan for salvation. The redemption of all who will believe is contained in these two verses. One man dying, being sacrificed for all of the world. John 3, 16 and 17, you know it well. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And verse 17, which we tend to skip over sometimes, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That sums it up right there. Those two verses, what was being prophesied by Caiaphas. Now, they didn't realize that. They, had, they were in self-preservation mode, and self-preservation mode told them what? We need one guy to die and get him out of the way. So in light of these two verses that we just looked at in John 3, 16 and 17, read what Caiaphas says to say again, that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad, the family of God, all those who would believe in Jesus gathered together in one as his family. God using the words of Caiaphas to summarize the very purpose of Jesus coming to start with. All of what Jesus had been doing, all of what he'd been teaching, saying, even to these religious leaders, is now summarized in the words of Caiaphas in his self-preservation uh, statements. Jot this down. The time is coming when man will do his worst and God will give his best. That's what's going on right now in this day and age at this time with Jesus. Man will do his worst and God will give his best. So we have report, we have response, and then we have result. Three things. Report, we see that in verse 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. That's the report. The response, verse 50, Nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. That's the response. And now the result, verse 53, Then from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. 
Now they've mentioned it before. We've seen it in our text. They've discussed it before. They've talked about it previously as an option. Now it's expedient that one man should die. We don't care if the people think he's guilty or innocent. We have to protect us and our nation. We're going to act on behalf of the people in order to protect our way of life. Self-preservation. And again, I don't want to get into politics, but is that not what goes on in Washington on a regular basis? We're going to act on behalf of the people. No, you're not. <laughs> you're doing what you want to do. You don't want to hear us at all. Except when it's election time. Then you want to hear from us. Self-preservation. They want to stay in a mode. And again, most of us do too, to protect what we've built up, what we've attained, where we have come. They want to protect that. Self-preservation. As we saw in verse 48, 48, in order to protect our place and our nation, they said. The status quo, to keep the current state of, of affairs is what they wanted. Now remember early in our study in the book of John, you may remember, you may not, we talked about three common uh, problem-solving methods. That if there's a problem, most companies you see, they're going to do one of three things. Either throw money at the problem, either throw resources at the problem, or just get rid of the problem altogether. Amen? Three common things that we see here. They're focused fully on number three now. Get rid of him. They would devise a plan, a plan that they believe was conceived by themselves. They really believe they're coming up with this plan. They got their counsel together. Caiaphas speaks. This is what we're going to do. They really believe it's their plan, but God himself had devised this plan. God actually conceived this plan. God is orchestrating this plan himself. And somehow we know that Jesus, he knows of their plans. Either by divine knowledge or by other means, Jesus knows of their plans. We don't know how, but he knew, and so he's staying away from Jerusalem for the time being. Time and time we've seen in John's text, and we've mentioned this, we've talked about it, my time has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. His time had not yet come. It's not time yet for Jesus to be arrested and for this plan that this council thinks that they have is to take place. It was ordained by God that His time would come, that He would be betrayed, He'd be seized, He would be arrested, tried, crucified, and buried in a tomb. And then he himself would be raised from the dead. But that time had not yet come. It's coming. Everything's lining up and the Jews are plotting and planning how to put him to death. His time is coming. Verse 54. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? So Jesus for now is staying out of Jerusalem. They're wondering if he will come to the feast. They need him to come to this feast to carry out their plan. It's expedient that this one man should die. The expectation on their part is what? He will come to this feast. 
It's the Passover. It was required by law for Jewish males to come to this feast. They're confident that he's going to be coming to this feast, and he will be. Verse 57, now both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So we also see again them working behind the scenes, right? If they've said this once, we know that they've said it before. If anyone knew where he was, if they knew what he was doing, they should report it so that they would know, so that they could continue to put their plan together, to devise. The result of their plotting and planning, the prophecy that God spoke through Caiaphas was coming to pass in an expedient way. That word is interesting, expedient. Uh, several years ago when I was working for uh, Hewlett-Packard, they were going through a time of layoffs. And of course, they always want to ease the stress of those types of things by, we want to do everything we can to help you pr prepare for your next step and what uh, you know, your future holds. So they take you through these um, tests to determine what your strengths and weaknesses are. And they also uh, help you write your new resume and use big creative words to help you get across or communicate to that new employer how good you are. If I'm so good, why am I getting laid off, you know? Uh, which I didn't. It wasn't expedient at that time for them to uh, lay me off, I guess. Uh, they just sold the company and I went with the new company. You know? But uh, expedient is one of those words that you can use. And there's all these little catch words that get across the point. So I like this translation in that it says that this is not only something that must be done quickly, but it also must be done with quality. It's expedient. It's a, it's a good thing to do it in this way, basically speaking. And it's going to be done quickly. We're going to see at the time that he makes this statement, we're only about a week away, aren't we, from Passover. So it's expedient because they want to do it quickly. And they want to do it correctly. They don't want any mistakes here. They want it done to satisfy not only their own self-preservation, key, but also they want it handled correctly when it comes to dealing with Rome, right? They don't want any issues there. Now we'll see it didn't quite work out exactly that the way that they wanted, uh, mainly because he didn't stay dead, you know, <laughs> but also because it caused great uh, issues and problems with Rome. So an expedient way, the man dying for all, we know that that's what Jesus is exactly what he did. And praise God that he did. You look at the words of Caiaphas, this prophecy, and you just think, man, what a plot, what a plan. When in fact, whose plan was it all along? The Lord's. Amen? God set forth this plan to save the whole world. And all we need to do is accept who he is because he is the risen Christ. Amen?